the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You're listening to Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World with career coach and employment strategist, Dr. David Petrove. For more information on any of the topics or issues we've discussed on this program, or to request a free no-obligation consultation with Dr. Petrove, please visit his website at davidpetrovecoaching.com. That's davidpetrovecoaching.com, or call 650-400-7461. That's 650-400-7461. And now back to this special presentation, Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World. Dr. Petrove, as we move on from our discussion concerning traditionalists, baby boomers, we talked about the approach that Gen Y or millennials have to careers in the working world. And that brings us up to the most recent generation, the so-called Gen Zers. Tell us all about them. Well... When I entered into the field of career coaching a number of years ago, the statement was made, this is the first time where we have traditionalist baby boomers, Gen X and Gen Y, four generations living in the same workspace, working under the same roof. That's already changed because if we look at the Gen Zers, sometimes called the Gen 2020ers, sometimes called the 911 generation because they were post 9-11, right around that period. Now we're talking 2000 to present, approximately 60 million native-born American members, which outnumber their prior generations in some cases. So these are conscientious, hardworking, somewhat anxious individuals they're now becoming employment age. If you take a look at the time where we are now, they're entering the workforce. What will that workforce look like for them? Well, I think that you need to think about what their life has been like up to this point. You were talking about, you know, with technology, computers, television, these pieces of technology. This will be the first generation to be raised in the era of smartphones. They didn't have to adapt to it. It was there when they came along. Yes, and, you know, for them to look at what we recognize as a typical or traditional dial phone, they would probably look at that and wonder, how do you go about doing it (laughs) or actually manipulating buttons? Making me feel very old right now. Yes. (laughs) Operator. Yes. (laughs) May I have Klondike (laughs) 7243? So I think that there are a number of contributors to what's happening in the world that will help to model what their work life is like. Remember we talked about the societal changes, economic changes that affected the way in which people approached work. Just between the years 2000 and 2010, this country's Hispanic population grew at four times the rate 
of the total population. The number of Americans that self-identified as mixed white and black biracial rose 134%. The number of Americans of mixed white and Asian descent grew by 87%. And these profound demographic shifts are reflected in the cultural level, too. Attitudes on social issues have shifted, in some cases seismically. So in the decades since millennials were teenagers, we have now been introduced to same-sex marriage within the country. That was something that was totally alien to generations prior to this. And at the same time, they look at the privacy, the caution, the focus on sensible careers, and they look less like millennials and possibly more like their grandparents in their approach. How so? Well, I think that one of the things that happens is, and I have found this in the presentations I've done, I've had the participants look at the various generations and characteristics of them. And when I break them up into generations for discussion, the one that is two generations apart says, oh, I'm more like that one, not like the one just before me. And I said, have you ever noticed that your children will identify more with their grandparents than their parents. And, and this perhaps is demonstrated in interest in going back to previous musical styles, an interest in the music of the 20s, architecture of the Art Deco period, things of that sort. It can be. So it would be, make for a fascinating study as to why exactly that occurs. But it seems to be pretty common for individuals to say, oh, yeah, my son or daughter is much more likely to go to the grandparents to talk to them about things. What do my parents know? So I think part of that is what we talked about earlier, which is the need to separate in terms of identity from the parents. That's just a natural part of growing, especially in the 20s. So I think that this is something that, again, we'll see within Generation Z. Now, we're seeing, as you indicate, the sheer numbers, uh, hundreds of millions of individuals as we add all of generations together, and as new people are coming into the workplace, old people are leaving it. And, and I don't mean old literally, but maybe I do. Baby boomers, uh, 80 million of us, 10,000 a day reach retirement age. And as we see these people begin to exit the workforce, how is that going to impact opportunities for not just baby boomers that are leaving, but the folks that are coming in? Well, I think that we're going to see a much more flexible workforce. I think you're going to see what we refer to as e-workers. You know, e-anything right now is big. And they're going to grow in number, and they're going to be supported by mobile technology and a term that we would have said, well... That's something that occurs when you look up into the sky, the cloud, okay? The cloud, which is this vast storage for information. So that will affect the types of work that people do. I think that what's also going to happen, Craig, is that we may see, and most likely we'll see, a return to that model of work that we talked about, the gig economy, which was similar to the Middle Ages where you come in, you do a specific job based upon your area of expertise. When you're done, you move on. So teams of people will be much more fluid where people skills will be much more important, knowing how to interact effectively and efficiently with people. 
then also companies are looking to create internal placement offices. So these huge companies that you described earlier, they're looking for ways to keep their workforce because, as we were talking about, it's expensive to replace them. So looking at what we call more lateral mobility than upward mobility, where people have an opportunity to grow, they have an opportunity to try new skills, to retool in that area, and build that longevity within a company. It could be a geographic relocation to another branch of the company elsewhere in the country or on the planet, or perhaps across to a different sector that might be same company but different division. Right. Right. And again, you know, will companies focus on a limited number of tasks that they perform or will they be like Amazon, which we typically think of as, oh, they were all about books. Well, in today's world, that is only one small sector of what they do. So the world may become populated by giant Amazons. We don't know. What we do know is that Within each of these generations, just thinking 10 years from now, things are going to be really different. The youngest traditionals will be about 83 years old 10 years from now. So only a small percentage of them will actually be working. So what does that mean for the remainder of them? Well, we're hoping that they enjoy a full, satisfying life based on health care, and we don't have you know, the assisted living homes packed with individuals who are incapable of taking care of themselves. So I think there's going to have to be a lot of research around aging and what we can do to address that in upcoming populations. Uh, For the baby boomers, as you were saying, about 10,000 of them turn 65 every day. And that will occur until the year about 2030. And that's about 18% of the population at that time. So that's an increase of about 5% within that age group. And they started turning 65 on January 1st, 2011. So you know that there's still a significant amount of time for them to join what was traditionally retirement age. And interestingly enough, when we talk about old age, people getting older, the baby boomers do have a mindset as to what they consider to be old age. And for them, it starts at about 72. I'm sure if you asked a 20-year-old, one of the Gen Zs, what they thought old age was. When I was was, 20, 30 was old age. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But I think that as we progress, we keep moving that year further and further ahead especially if you look at baby boomers and their Peter Pan approach to life. They don't like growing up. So, unfortunately, the net personal savings for baby boomers mean that they most likely will need to continue to work at some level if they want to maintain a specific lifestyle. So, in the next two decades, with Gen X, they will begin to take over the leadership roles in this country. And they are the smallest generation in modern U.S. history, constituting about 15.4% of our population. And they are actually the first generation to do worse financially than their parents. They've lived through two recessions already, and we don't know how many more they will be facing. Uh, They're reminded that things can change 
almost instantaneously. The Berlin Wall fell, the USSR disintegrated, the Cold War ended. Interestingly enough also, they tend to earn a higher income than their boomer parents, but they only enjoy about a third of the wealth due to soaring education and housing expenses. So again, even though they're looking on paper like they're earning more, what's actually going into their pocket is less, and that's disposable income that is being reduced. In fact, in 2014, only 65% had anything saved at all in retirement, keeping them in the labor market longer. And this is a group of individuals who sees no leadership in the current political system to address future social, fiscal, and environmental concerns. So by the mid-2020s, we may see them beginning to take over to reshape the government. And, of course, as automation continues to be introduced, it's going to affect both blue- and white-collar professions. And this may affect or accelerate massive layoffs across a range of industries. We don't know what those are yet. The other aspect of it that is a reality as the boomers continue to add to the public social security pension system, the system may implode. We've heard already that after X number of years, there'll no longer be any money there. I think 2035, essentially, the so-called uh, lockbox will be completely empty. Yes. I think they drilled a hole at the bottom when nobody was looking. Right. We'll take a brief time out. We're going to pick up our conversation with Dr. David Petrove, career coach, as we take a look at the future of employment for Gen Y or millennials right after this. listening to Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World with career coach and employment strategist, Dr. David Petrove. For more information on any of the topics or issues we've discussed on this program, or to request a free no-obligation consultation with Dr. Petrove, please visit his website at davidpetrovecoaching.com. That's davidpetrovecoaching.com, or call 650-400-7461. That's 650-400-7461. And now back to this special presentation, Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World. We've been talking in this ongoing series about the future of work, what that means for you as an individual, and as we've been discussing in this portion of the series, what exactly the future of work will look like from generation to generation. And we pick up now with what the future of work looks like, Dr. Petrove, for Gen Ys or millennials. So for these individuals, just like you were saying, Craig, by the year 2035, 2037, if there are no Social Security benefits and millennials are only able to save about 7.5% of today's household median income in each city, a normal retirement may not be possible. So in this scenario where you have millennials relying exclusively on their savings in the 401k, we don't know what else might be developed beyond that. We estimate that the average millennial living in the largest cities won't be able to retire until their 80s. 
And they have a calculator that estimates that that might not occur. I mean, in terms of their lifespan, looking at the age of 95, the average millennials will only have about 10 years' worth of income to retire on. It's fascinating because it's almost a throwback to the pre-Social Security days where up until the 1930s, you essentially worked until you dropped. There was no safety net whatsoever. Certainly few pensions existed, but very few. And we've also, in that regard, almost come full circle. Pensions now no longer exist, and the ability of the Social Security net to essentially rescue everyone has more and more holes in it. And so your retirement is either going to be non-existent or perhaps reliant solely upon your ability to inherit from your parents. And if you look at that, and in terms of Social Security being introduced in the 30s, and now we're looking at the possibility of it being bankrupt in the 2030s, it's about a 100-year cycle. Okay, And then the question becomes, what would it take to restart the cycle, what will that cycle look like? If it took 100 years to get to where we are today or where we will be in 2035, can that be accelerated in terms of the benefits to those who are on the planet, or do they have to wait it out and say, well, those of us who are in 2035 may not experience what our grandparents did but maybe our grandchildren will have a different future. Certainly a reboot of any sort is going to be challenging for future generations. Yes. And speaking of which, there is the Generation Z group, the ones that are now entering into the workforce. Now, for them, schooling, I think, will take on a very different look. They will no longer be going to school just to gain knowledge or securing a job based on that. I think it's going to be focusing more on developing niche skills and global exposure. Every year, the world seems to be opening up more and more. What we were talking about earlier with these virtual teams comprised of people from all over the planet, this will become more the norm. Why? They're going to be focused on what specific skills those individuals bring. And if they are individuals who live in... India, or they live in Georgia, or and not the state of Georgia, but the the country, okay, and Australia, or New Zealand. Basically, what you're going to see is these individuals contributing their area of expertise to whatever the project is. So even the traditional four-year higher education may change as the cost of education and the number of schools, and therefore opportunities for education begin to continue to dwindle, then maybe going back to, again, more of a um, job skill training based unique to that particular position perhaps will be on the rise for this generation. It can be. And what's just growing in leaps and bounds right now is online education. Um, I've been involved in acquiring a number of certifications that all I need to do is have a computer in front of me. And I go through the modules, and at the end of each module, there is an evaluation that determines whether or not I'm ready to go on to the next one. At the end of that, I take some type of a, an assessment that determines if I'm competent in this, and then I'm given a certification that says, yes, you are knowledgeable in this field. So I wonder sometimes about the brick-and-mortar schools. 
course, people will say, well, what about the football teams? What about the things that are pretty traditional? Traditions change. That may, again, be something that continues for a while. And if a future generation no longer sees a value in it, then it will no longer continue to exist. Those changes in traditions will certainly reach down into the future of work. And as we discuss where we're at today, what do you think is going to disappear tomorrow? What's the horizon? If you could look into your employment and career crystal ball, what's the horizon look like in your opinion? Well, as Richard Bowles pointed out 40 years ago when he thought it was going to go in one direction and it didn't, one never knows for sure and without having that crystal ball. We do know that, for instance, blue-collar jobs in manufacturing, one area that's being affected through the introduction of robotics. Those robots are able to work 24-7. They don't need a break. They're performing menial tasks that are routine in nature. They can have a high level of precision. You don't have to worry about the Monday morning effect of people returning to work. And someone once pointed out, never buy a car on a Monday morning that was actually that was built on a Monday morning. So there's all of that that would need to be taken into consideration. And that, again, is manufacturing. But what is emerging, as I was saying earlier, is this interest in regenerative wellness. And these are creating solutions for restoring organs that may have become permanently damaged. We're now hearing about the ability to grow your own organs that can be used for transplants later on. So you don't have to worry about tissue rejection. It will be your tissue. So that is an area I think that we will see a great boom in. And geopolitics, the whole idea of the fact that one political system on this planet has a direct effect on another. We're going to see more and more of that, how governments need to interact with one another in order to maintain a certain standard of living. The so-called global economy. Yes, yes. So I think those are two areas that are definitely going to be emerging. So how do we then calculate and organize our goal-setting and the effort that we invest into achieving those goals moving into the future of our careers? So I think that one of the things that's important for individuals to do is to have a five-year plan. One that is not set in stone, that allows for flexibility as new opportunities present themselves. What you may think you want to focus on today, all of a sudden something new is introduced and you say, oh, that is definitely something that I want to explore. So we need to know that when we have a written plan, we're more likely to achieve our goals. So one of the things that I do professionally is I meet with a colleague on a regular basis. We're both in the same line of work. We identify annual goals. We have obviously set our goals for this year. And then we meet through online technology, and we review how we're doing with those goals. It keeps our feet to the fire. And so when you know that you're going to be accountable to someone, it really does keep it in your consciousness to take those steps forward. Stretches you. It keeps you on the leading edge of where work is headed and make sure that you don't get stuck in a rut where some people might get stuck there and find out that job opportunities and career opportunities have passed them by. Yes. And the other thing that can happen is you're working your way through this five-year plan and you make a decision this is no longer the direction I want my career to take. I have some new opportunities here. So as I was telling people in my, at the beginning of the programming, 
the work that I did for 34 years as an educator, I decided not to continue that. And how do I feel about that today? It was a rough transition. I'm glad I made it. Do we have to then sometimes give ourselves permission to make those kinds of changes? Because I can see the individual that says, well, gee, years ago, I put so much time and effort into getting my bachelor's degree or my master's degree, and suddenly I'm pursuing this whole new career track that has little, if any, relationship to what I studied for all those years ago. And we oftentimes look at that as as surrendering of a skill or a tremendous loss. But what I'm hearing you suggest is maybe we need to give ourselves permission to say changing directions midstream is okay. And not only is it okay, it's pretty natural, as we were looking at the various parts of our lives, that around the age of 50, we begin to reevaluate where we're headed in our lives and say, you know, I've always wanted to, and I've always had a reason not to pursue that. Today, what we can do is take stock of what we refer to as our transferable skills. These are those skills that you carry with you throughout life, the ability to communicate, the ability to problem solve. That's why it's important, I think, for individuals to really step back and take stock of what they bring to the table. Now, as we've talked about a perspective on the past, certainly talked about the future and goal setting and what that looks like. For a person who's retooling, rethinking right now, where should their focus be? So I think, again, it's in knowing yourself. Asking yourself, what are my interests, values, skills, personality traits that I take into the workplace? And then take a hard look at your personal beliefs around who you are and how you function in the world. Because these are powerful predictors of your success. One of the things that I work with clients on is their need to increase their self-confidence. There's a lot of self-doubt, especially when you're trying something new. And it's really important to have someone who can be your cheerleader in terms of, I know you can do this. It's not easy. It's a risk. But you're not alone. And I think that one of the things that I've learned in my almost 70 years of being here on this planet is it doesn't hurt to ask for help. If you're not sure about how to do something, there are multiple people around you who can certainly provide that information to help you get through some rough spots. So I think that if there's a disconnect between what you think and what you feel, it will show up in how you experience life. You may say that you're open to a high-paying job, but your feelings may indicate the contrary. There may be doubt or insecurity that keep you from realizing your aspirations. So you want to make sure that the two of those are truly in alignment. You're listening to Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World with career coach and employment strategist, Dr. David Petrove. For more information on any of the topics or issues we've discussed on this program or to request a free no-obligation consultation with Dr. Petrovay, please visit his website at davidpetrovaycoaching.com. That's davidpetrovaycoaching.com or call 650-400-7461. That's 650-400-7461. No portion of this program may be transmitted by third parties in whole or in part without the express written consent of David W. Petrovay, DBA, David Petrovay Coaching. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved.
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, when you think of a lot of the challenges that our nation has been facing for the last couple of three years, um, you know, unemployment situations, uh, loss of homes because of a foreclosure, uh, you know, it's easy to get discouraged, certainly to kind of live in that that place that's sort of permanent disappointment. And yet out of all of that, particularly for Christians, how do we we be uh, sort of adequately rise up and, and, and above all of that so we can go on with life and, and enjoy victory in our relationship with Christ? Well, that topic uh, centers around the title of a new book written by my next guest. Uh, you'll recognize her as having been the uh, Emmy Award winning co-host of Aspiring Women on uh, KTLN here in the San Francisco Bay Area. She She's written a number of best-selling books, in fact, over 30 to her credit, including her latest, How to Get Past Disappointment, Finding Hope. And Michelle McKinney-Hammond, Michelle, great to have you on the show. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Boy, this is uh, this is a timely topic. So many people are just dealing with that kind of overall biting sense of disappointment of what's going on. They've, you know, life can be tough enough, and then when you add to it the economy and so on and so forth, yes. I think a lot of people kind of get stuck in that place and they don't know how to get out. Yes, yes, because they begin to see cycles in their lives, and it, it leads to to the deception that this is all life has to offer, and, well, I should just settle in and, and not expect more than where I am, and then we begin to, to make choices that sink us even lower in, into that place, you know? And then I wonder, as that process is kind of taking place, um, if there needs to be a change in our thinking. You know, I think there are some Christians who, who move into that position of defeat and disappointment, and they kind of, you know, kind of conclude that it's here, it's here to stay, so I have to learn to live with disappointment right. as opposed to learning from disappointment and then moving on back into victory. Right. Because every disappointment, you know, a friend of mine um, all describes disappointment as a disappointment uh, in the sense that we make appointments in life for ourselves, decisions of, of what should be or how things should go. And when the other people don't meet us there, the other parties involved don't meet us there, we feel dissed, we feel um, cast off, um, and it just really invites a spirit of rejection that lowers our self-esteem and, and literally paralyzes us um, so that we do get stuck, as you said. And a lot of it, I think, then comes down to misguided expectations. I mean, let's think for a moment about people. How often do we live in that position of disappointment because our son, our daughter, our husband, our wife, uh, our parents uh, did something or behaved in a fashion that disappointed us, and now all of a sudden we're, we're kind of stuck in that defeat position? Yeah, yeah. It's true. And, and, and you know, life is, is a greater thing than that. And so we really cannot base uh, how, the conclusions that we make on life based on what people did or didn't do. It has to be come from a, a deeper place. That's why I use the, uh, the woman at the well um, as an example um, in this book, How to Get Past Disappointment, because she had been through a cycle of disappointments that led her to the conclusion that that was all life had to offer for her. And, and the danger in that is that when we get so jaded by our disappointments, we can't recognize the blessing when it does present itself. And, you know, what's amazing about that story is that um, e- e- even as, as Jesus meets with her, mm-hmm. he knows exactly what's going on. Oh, yeah. 
you know, we, we I think sometimes think that we can kind of hide that. We try to mask those feelings mm-hmm. instead of coming to the terms with them or instead of dealing with the root cause of what is behind the disappointment and sometimes the role that we play because maybe we've gotten our eyes focused more on the person or the situation instead of keeping our eyes focused on Christ. And, and maybe as we're, you know, kind of trying to keep up fronts, you know, keep up appearances, and yet Jesus fully knows what's going on, doesn't he? He does, you know, and, and, and what I think is important for, for listeners to know is that despite your bad choices, um, your seeming failures, or even uh, the contributions you think you've made to your life being the way you are, Jesus makes an appointment with all of us. I mean, Jesus went to that well to meet that woman on purpose. It was a purposeful decision to be there that day when she got there. Um, and I think that he... Um, is just as purposeful with meeting us in those places of disappointment. He has an appointment to meet us there, um, to show us another way, to show us another wellspring, another area of fulfillment um, that will bring about uh, what we've been thirsting for. I don't think that she even realized how deep her disappointment was until he started pushing her buttons and uh, getting her to see that there was an option. You know, so many people that I talk to who are disappointed feel they don't have any other option. Mm. Um, I was just talking to um, a friend of mine the other day on the phone in uh, another failed relationship, and she said, well, here I am alone again, um, and I don't think I'll ever have anyone. I said, well, maybe you don't have anyone today, but don't feel that because that person rejected you that you have no options. You have options. And as a matter of fact, uh, we exercise those options every day. I mean, I always tell single people, you're alone because you want to be alone, because there are people that you de- decided that you did not want to have in your life. Mm. You know, So don't, don't say that, you know, oh, you, you, you are the helpless person in this. No, you've had options that you chose not to exercise. So you are single by choice. How to Get Past Disappointment, Finding Hope, the title of her new book, newly published again by Harvest House and available through Amazon.com, as well as through Bay Area Christian bookstores and bookstores overall. Uh, Michelle, as we talk about uh, sort of realigning our, our expectations, talk to me about the process of moving from from fear to hope in in the backdrop of dealing with circumstances, sometimes of our own creation, sometimes beyond our control. But nevertheless, how do we go about making that transition from fear to hope? Well, it really is taking, taking our eyes off of what we consider the source to seeing the root of the issue, because the disappointments in our lives are really the fruit that emanate from a root. And I, I think that a lot of times we live on the surface and, and we only deal with what we see versus what we don't see. Uh, when we look at the conversation that took place between Jesus and the woman at the well, we find out that the issue was deeper than her desire to be loved by these men. It really was a great need for God. Almost a crying out in a sense. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, you know, she was trying to fill a void uh, with the, to the best of her ability with something that was natural not knowing that what she needed was supernatural. Um, and, and, and it's very interesting because there's a very subtle uh, conversation that happens uh, when she tells Jesus, you know, this water that you're talking about, I want it because I'm tired of being thirsty and I don't want to have to come back here again. And I think that a lot of us are that way. We're tired of longing, and we don't want to keep revisiting the same issue over and over again in our lives. And he says, I'll give it to you, um, you know, go and get your husband and, 
Now we get down to, to the nitty-gritty of confessing where we really are. She says, I don't have a husband. Well, I mean, she probably had been saying she had a husband. She was living with a man, according to the scripture. And he says, you've told the truth. And he congratulates her on it. He says, you've done well to tell the truth. So um, we know that the word says that the truth is what makes us free. It gives us the tools we need to, to get beyond where we are. And uh, so he congratulates her. He's very gracious with her and says it's true that you don't have a husband. You've had five, and the one you're with now is not yours. So what he was bringing up was here's this cycle that you've had in your life, and, and you, you've had five, five, six men, and you're still thirsty. You know, what have we continued to do and still felt the same longing, the same disappointment, even though we thought we were applying solutions to our, to our longings and desires? And I think that the light went on in her head because even though she perceived him to be a prophet, the question that she asked him was not about the men. It wasn't about will those relationships work out. It was how could she get to God because obviously the men had never been enough. And I say that what God is saying to all of us in the middle of our disappointments is, look to me so that I can show you the source of fulfillment. Look to me so I can give you the wisdom to find a better way to exercise different options in your life that bring about the victory that you desire. And, you know, you put it so well, because so often this ends, ends up being a product of having put our trust, our faith, our hope and desire on something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. Most definitely. And, and he must be. You know, he says, I am the rewarder of those who diligently seek me. And then he says something even more spectacular. He says, at my right hand are pleasures evermore. I am your exceeding and great reward. And the reward is the pleasure of being in my company. Because when I come into your life, I bring everything that you've been looking for. And all of those solutions are found in me. He, he's the one who gives us the wisdom uh, to, to gain the things that he knows we want. He's not opposed to us having what we want, but he wants to add what we need to the ball game too. Yeah. And sometimes we don't recognize that. I don't think that uh, that woman didn't even know why. We don't know, you know, the, the inside scoop on all those relationships. It, it, he said she had had five husbands. So if he said five husbands and then differentiated that the one she was with was not hers, that means she had five legitimate husbands. What happened to them? Did they divorce her? Did they abuse her? Did they leave her? Did they die? We do not know. But out of it came a vow, obviously, that she was not going to put herself in the position to be disappointed again, and she made a bad choice. She made a choice that she thought would put her in the position of power by simply living with someone so that she could not be abandoned again. And we do that. We, we prop ourselves up and we begin to make compromises that we think are guarding our hearts, but it really puts us in the position for greater pain. We appreciate so much, uh, Michelle, the insights. I know a lot of this comes from your own life experience, and, and I'll let readers get a copy of the book to, uh, to get more details on that. Meanwhile, again, um, How to Get Past Disappointment, Finding Hope, published by Harvest House and available through Amazon.com and certainly at uh, Bay Area bookstores. Also information on the web at MichelleHammond.com. That's M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E, MichelleHammond.com. Michelle, thanks again so much for your time. 
Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.